Welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. For Black History Month, we revisit a phenomenal episode we had with our good friend, Willie Dawkins. Willie was a part of the desegregation of schools in South Carolina, and we felt like sharing Willie's story was important because when we think of desegregation, we often think of it as something that happened a long time ago, but it was as recent as the 1970s that South Carolina began to eliminate the schools that were separated by race. I wanted to honor that story because we fight for inclusion for our son every year. And I think in knowing and hearing others' stories, we can have insight, guidance, strength, and inspiration into our own. And sometimes, as Willie said, sometimes they share the same ingredients We are all working towards the same thing, a world where everyone is equal. And inclusion is a given. So welcome our friend, Willie Dawkins. Well, Willie, we're really happy that you're here with us today. I'm happy to be here. This is a conversation I wanted to have with you for some time because you lived through the desegregation of schools. And so I appreciate you. We appreciate you sharing your story with us here today. Could you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm uh, Willie Dawkins. I live in Los Angeles, California right now. And for the last number of years, I worked in the film industry. I also do some writing on the side of screenplays, etc. But I'm from South Carolina originally. I was born there in 1962 in August. And I was the last of nine children born to Booker T. Dawkins and Esther E. Dawkins. My mom had nine kids. Uh, She birthed 11 kids. Uh, She lost two, pretty much to some of the things we'll probably talk about. My mom also, you know, would take her children while she was picking cotton and working in the fields in the South and under, you know, horrible conditions, would put her youngest child in a basket under a shade tree while she picked cotton. Those are some experiences of, of my brothers and sisters and I. So I was the last of nine. So she saved the best for last, obviously. And I could spend two days talking about my parents because I love my parents very much. And, and my mom, because I lost my father when I was uh, 11 in 1974, what they gave as a cause of death being emphysema. But my family and I knew at the end of the day, it was really brown lung because my father worked in a cotton factory for 25 years and breathing cotton fibers. And, and there was a big cover up in the South at that time of those things because doctors didn't want to say that mostly men who worked in these factories would die and women were dying of brown lung because there was huge lawsuits to be had. So my father passed when I was 11. And then my mother was basically like two parents to me because I was 11. And then I was about to go into my teenage years and you know, what you really need if you're if you're a boy, you really need your father and you need that fatherly advice. And 
but I didn't have my father, but I did have older brothers that I could go to. But even that was difficult because when I was six, my oldest brother was going to college. So I basically had older brothers, but they weren't necessarily always in the house. So my mother was like a, 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 a mother and a father to me and just really was a, a, a glowing example of how to live the right way. Uh, how to treat people uh, growing up in the South around racism and segregated schools and all these things. And my mother was a person who taught that's not something you're going to do. And even though my parents only had uh, a very limited education, my father, I think he, my father went to sixth grade and my mother went to like eighth grade. They both had to leave school to take care of their younger siblings and work in the fields, you know, because it was just hard living at that time. Even though they only had those educations, they made sure that their children were going to finish high school and also go to and finish college. So out of the nine of us, everybody finished high school. Everybody's got a college degree. And I think five of the nine of us have uh, master's degrees. It, it really pointed out the strength of my mother. Um, so that's kind of how I grew up uh, and where I grew up. I you know, grew up during the 60s and the early 70s uh, in the Carolinas. We didn't lack, though we didn't have a lot. We didn't lack because my, my folks were also, my father was a sharecropper. And that's how I grew up, you know, farming and raising hogs and chickens and shooing chickens off the off the nest and taking warm eggs for breakfast and farming the fields and and picking uh crop you know when they were harvested uh, and I was the last of nine my brothers and sisters called it worse um and I remember coming home one day at six years old and and my mom going let's go and you know we went to the field and we'd get out there and pick cotton um and I found that one of the interesting things that I got my mother to do when I was in high school and I went to college, I was constantly saying to my mother, you need to record your story, you know, because she'd always tell these fascinating stories, fascinating about how she grew up and her family and her siblings and, and, and how she raised us. And so one year, Stephen, you'll be able to relate to this. One year I was um, working on a movie called The Rock. It was up on Alcatraz Island and we'd been up there for a couple of months and it's kind of tough on the island. It was a lot of tough work. And one day I come back to the hotel one night and everybody would line up to see if they had any mail, you know, from the outside world. The lady was like, yeah, yeah, you have some mail. I'm like, what? I got some mail. This is great. And she hands me this package and it's a manila envelope thick. And I, and it was from my mom. And there was five notebooks, you know, wire bound, like we use in school. And my mother had written her life story in five notebooks. And she spent time and in, in written her story. It floored me. Uh, one, that she actually had done it. But two, having the wherewithal to do it, because I know she started before she retired from work. And um, I just had to like open the first one and read the first page. And I remember my mother starting with a story like, my first memory is three years old, and she talked about what her memory was. And I was like, wow, I, I can barely remember yesterday, you know, let alone a memory when I was three years old. And so then she talked about the birth of all of her kids and 
what it was like to raise her kids, what her life was like during that time and her school life, the limited school life she had. And I actually learned more about my mom. And my mom was really an impressive lady. When was your mom born? My mom was born in 1930 in South Carolina. There was, I think there were six of them. Uh, my mom was like the middle child. She spoke about her mother uh, quite often and her mother's life. And her mother uh, passed away at a young age. I think she passed away at 49. You know, and a lot of that was literally from hard work, uh, you know, just wearing your body down. And my father was 16 years older than my mom. <laughs> um, and in fact, when my father met my mother, uh, my father was hanging out with my mother's father. And they came to my mom's home and my father looked at my mom and asked her dad, who is that? And he's like, well, that's one of my daughters. And that's how my father was introduced to my mother. Uh, and within the year they got together and my mother had her first child. When you say that your mom talked about how to live the right way, what was that? For my mom, uh, what she taught uh, us in terms of what I'm calling how to live the right way is to live in a way where you don't have to look over your shoulder, uh, that you're honest with people, that you don't put people down because everybody needs to be lifted up in some way or another. And I would hear her phone conversations when I was growing up in the house and I was with her at church and I was with her every morning at breakfast, especially in high school when I would have alone time with her and nobody else was in the house, all the kids were gone. And those conversations I would have with my mother and you just decipher how she lived and how she expected you to live. Uh, she didn't rule it over you, you know, she didn't lord it over you, but it was just, she lived by example. And my siblings, we still talk about it. You know, my mother passed in 2003. And we still talk about that, about how my mom, what she instilled, and my father, but since you asked specifically about my mom, what she kind of instilled, and, and, and to tr treat people like you want to be treated. Treat them fair if, th if that's how you want to be treated. Treat people how you want to be treated. And, and that's what she taught. And, and that's actually what she lived by. Willie, I, I remember like a couple of conversations that we've had that were very eye-opening to me. And I remember asking you about the racism that you experience in your life. Like when you drive home at night or if you get stopped, you're aware of the situation. Can you share some of that, your experience? Because what, I, what I'm thinking is that still today there's so much racism, but especially when your mother was young, and I'm thinking of this woman who obviously is very strong and has endured so many challenges in her life that I can't fathom. What it took for her to just still come from that place of, you know, you treat people how you want to be treated. And the one thing that you say about that she didn't want you to ever have to look over your shoulder. What's the reality of that? Well, there, there's a couple things. Uh, that, that's what, those are the things she taught us. Um, and then after that, it's like with any child, you know, they going to either listen or not. And sometimes you don't think you're listening, but later you find out that you were actually listening. You know, when you get up to some age and you go, wait a minute, I remember my mom said one time, blah, blah, blah. And you go, wait a minute, that's what she meant by that. You know, and as you become older and become a more of a, an adult, you start understanding 
as you were saying, Lori, how tough it is to live in those principles, especially when everything is like a gale force wind coming in your face. And I'll share a couple of examples of, of what I mean, mean, and even more recently. There's a side of being, I think, that I've experienced of being African-American that have been being stopped, say, by police officers specifically, and you know it's basically racism, straight up. You just call the spade a spade. And then there's the appearance of that. And knowing from experience some things you need to do to be in avoidance of those situations. I've specifically been stopped several times over the years. Uh, one was uh, I was actually in uh, Beverly Hills some years ago, and I came out of a restaurant with my then girlfriend, who happened to be Caucasian. And officers came up in a car, snatched me from the street, <laughs> and threw me down. And, you know, knees to the back and the whole thing. And, you know, I, I didn't know what that was about. And apparently there was someone else that fit my description who had done some offense that they considered an offense and they were looking for him and they thought I fit the description. A very similar thing also happened to one of my brothers up in Hollywood. The, the second incident was I was leaving a, a club years ago. I was still in graduate school. And I left the club, went across the street, got my car up on Sunset Boulevard, parked in this lot, drove the car out, see some lights. I pull over. It's a cop. I put my hands on the steering wheel just to show my hands. He comes up. I'm saying, well, he's going to ask me to give me for my license and my registration. And I have it in my glove compartment. I'm not going to reach for it now. But I'll tell him when he comes up, that's where it is. I'm going to reach for it. And he says, get out of the car. And I go, excuse me, get out of the car. You heard me, get out of the car. So I get out of the car and I was trying to say calmly, why did you stop me? What is this about? I don't want to hear anything from you. Go back to my car. He, had, he parked behind me. Go back to my car. Put your hands on my hood and stand there until I ask you to move. Okay. So I go back and I put my hands on his car. And I'm looking, and he's actually reaching inside my car, and he's going through things and disturbing things and opening glove compartments. And, and so I yell out to the guy as I'm standing there, Mr. Officer, if you're looking for drugs, you're not going to find any because I don't do drugs. Shut up. I told you to keep your hands on my car. Shut the F up. So then he grabs the key out of the ignition, goes to the trunk, pops the trunk opens the lid, starts pulling out the spare tire and the jacks. And I had a duffel bag in there that had some extra clothes in it and gym clothes. I played basketball earlier that day. And I'm standing there really just feeling really horrible, horribly belittled for about 20 minutes. Then I see another police car oncoming on the opposite side of the street. And they see me, there was eye contact and they did a UE and they come back and they parked behind him. They come up. It was a salt and pepper team, uh, a Caucasian officer and a black officer. And the Caucasian officer asked me, how are you doing tonight, sir? I said, well, I was doing pretty good until about 20 minutes ago. And he says, oh, okay. He goes, well, why are you here? Why did he stop you? I said, I don't know. I have no idea. And, and he says, well, listen, let me go talk to the officer and see exactly what's going on. So he goes to talk to the officer and the officer says, tells him, 
something frantic. He pulled out. He didn't have his lights on. I stopped him. And as he was saying that, I'm looking at my car and the lights are still on because it was the kind of car where even when you turn off the ignition, the lights would stay on. And so the guy knew this guy's fabricating everything. And so after about five minutes, the officer who stopped me comes up to me, flings the keys at me and says, if I see you out here again, you're going to jail. And then he got in his car and took off to which his fellow officers turned to me and said, well, he's, and they use some language. Everybody knows that he's a, a, and that he does stuff like this. Um, and then I'll fast forward and I'll stop these particular stories. Uh, recently, last year during COVID, when uh, George Floyd's life was uh, snuffed out of him by a knee, my son, who was 19 in the house and back from college and couldn't go out and, you know, the 19-year-olds are frustrated. We decided, my wife and I decided, okay, we're going to go protest. Uh, so we go downtown LA and protest for maybe half hour, 45 minutes. And then we leave, you know, my son said that felt really good. I'm happy that we're actually standing for, you know, really something good. And it was good for him to get out of the house and protest something for a cause. And it really means something. So we come back home when I start working on a a brake light from my wife's car. It was out and I had to replace the bulb. And I tell my son, hey, Shaylin, come on, let's go and take a ride and check it out, make sure it continues to work. It was about eight in the evening, sun had gone down. Okay. This was the day of the, pro we protested a George Floyd murder. And um, we go out and we're riding around up in Glendale, just driving around, the windows are down and we're talking about stuff in college and what he misses about college. And the next thing you know, there's a, some lights on us. So we pull over. He starts kind of getting a little nervous, my son. And uh, I said, stay calm. You know, when they come up, put your hands on the dashboard, you're in the passenger seat. And uh, when they come up, just don't make any quick movements. Just be calm and talk to them, answer the questions. Don't offer anything else. So he puts his hand on the dashboard in the passenger seat and the officer comes up. And I think what freaked my son out a bit was he said he could see in the rearview mirror that the one officer, you know, they unclip their weapons and they come up with their hands on their weapon because they don't know what they're going to run into. He said, oh, he's unclipping his weapon, dad. I said, it's normal. Stay cool. No problem. So they come up, they inquire, what are we doing out here at night? What are we doing? Where do we live? Why are you out here? But after about 10 minutes, he says to me, well, I pulled you over because you have a light out back there. And my light actually had gone back out unbeknownst to me. I fixed it. And then you know, I did a shoddy job, apparently, and it went back out. And he actually stopped me for that. But it was right on the edge of being something else. And the one officer that was at my son's window saw my son shaking with his hand shaking on it. And he said, you can relax. You can take your hands off the glove compartment. And my son took his hands off. And I didn't know, because for me, that had happened many times. And so it was just another link in the chain for me. But for my son, who had never experienced that like that, even if it was that a pullover for a, a tail light, he came home and was telling his mom about it. And he actually started crying. Then I noticed Two days later, he had put up a Facebook post about this incident. And then, and then I realized how much it had actually bothered him. And it's those things that 
go deeper than the initial shock of being pulled over. It's the fear of not knowing what might happen. And that's why people protest. That's why people are standing up. And I always think about my mom in these situations. And my mom always said, if you're not wrong, stand your ground. If you're wrong, apologize. So I told my son, hey, you didn't do anything, don't worry. So as long as you're standing on right and on truth, even though things can still get out of hand, you'll feel good about what you did. And if something were to happen, at least you have that. So then I had a talk with him about the whole thing and I, about how actually fearful he was of that and why he was fearful. And then it was a great opportunity for lesson and the teach to say, listen, it could have gone a different way. It didn't. It stayed this way. But just know that this is out there. This is out there. And you have to don't live your life in a box, but you have to be aware. I mean, I'm a 58-year-old man, uh, 59 this year in August, and even coming home last night from, at 11 o'clock from a movie shoot, I have to always decide which way am I going. Most of the time, I vote for the freeway because it's just a quick passage. If I go surface streets, I know that I could get tailed like I did a year ago for five blocks and just nothing happened but just cop on your bumper just because you're out and you're coming home at one in the morning from one of these crazy movie shoots. And so I'm aware of those things. Um, and and, and I, you have to be highly aware of them. And, it, and, it, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating. I can't imagine what it feels like besides frustrating that the conversations you have to have with your son are not the conversations that we have to have. I know I've heard from a couple of my other friends who are raising young men one of them is a, a friend of Liam and just the loveliest boy that they have to have different conversations with their kids. Absolutely. I think about when I was a teenager driving and um, a cop would pull behind me, I'd see lights, how, yeah, my heart would drop. I'd get this cold feeling in my body because my thought was, I'm going to get a ticket and my dad's going to be mad at me. Yes. Has nothing to do with possible violence. You're absolutely right, Stephen. I think there's that fear. And, and, and then, yeah, and then you're like, I don't know, you know, am I going to get out of this or not? Yeah, well, that's the privilege that is talked about that's been coined white privilege, but that is exactly a definition that I haven't had to hold at all times that the color of my skin has anything to do with anything negative. And it's just a given that I don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Can you share how you felt walking out of a restaurant with your girlfriend and just cops throw you to the ground? It feels like if you're on a nice walk or something and suddenly a big wind comes out of nowhere and, you know, and blows across you. It's like, oh, wow, that was sudden. Where did that come from? Except the difference here is, is that it's that sudden. But the difference is, is that, you know, you're not sure if, if a weapon comes out of a holster and your brain is telling you based on history what the possibilities are. There's a measured calculation. And that is that you do what you can to make it out of the situation. But at the same time, you know that things could get aggressive and anything can happen. You could get hauled in for no reason. And between here and there, some things happen. 
happened to people I know. It's happened to people we see in the news uh, that are waiting in a jail cell. So you never quite know the extent. And at that time, you know, I didn't have kids or anything. And it was just me. So, you know, latter events, it's like, God, you first thing you're thinking about is your kids. Like, I need to get, I need to make it out of this so that I can continue to be a father and continue to support and raise my children. What is going to be the intensity of this? Is it going to be somebody found out I had a parking ticket and I'm going to go down to the station, which happened to me once? Or is it going to be knees in the back and somebody's having a bad day and they think a certain way and they're going to take it out on you? So that's what, that's what you're thinking about. That's what I was thinking about. Um, as my then girlfriend was screaming to high heavens and being belligerent and saying, what are you doing? <laughs> we just came out of the restaurant. So yeah, that's what I was thinking about in that particular incident. But it has to resonate. How does that resonate in you? Like, how do you, how do you get up and move on? And then you, that's just your reality, Willie. It, 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 that's exactly it. It's the reality. You know how people say, well, you know, you just deal with reality. Now, there's options in reality. You can just deal with reality and let things go and let them continue to fester. Or you can use those things as a lesson, like I've used those things as a lesson in one way uh, to teach my children about how, you know, these things can happen and how easily they can happen. It's not even like you have to, you know, snatch someone's purse and be running. You can just come out of a restaurant. And so all you have to be in those situations is this color. And now, uh, because you mentioned earlier the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been a Black Lives Matter movement for <laughs> many years. I mean, that was a Black Lives Matter movement in Plessy versus Ferguson in the 1800s, where a guy tried to sit in a white rail car of a train and decided he wasn't going to get out, and it became Plessy versus, versus Ferguson. You know, then later you know, the Brown versus the Board of Education and these things that led to the, some of the integration stuff in the South. And it's interesting, I was going to say something earlier, Lori, you mentioned the power of language and the power of words. When I went to film school in the 80s, a graduate school at UCLA, I had an instructor, uh, Bill Adams. We were all sitting there in the first couple of days, oh my God, we're film students, we got in. And, and he would say, now, let me just tell you new students. Yeah, this is the film school and it's UCLA and you think it's a big deal and the whole thing. He said, but let me tell you something. It's not as big a deal as you think. And he said, you're going to go get your equipment and you're going to go down the hallway here across from Soundstage One and you're going to go to the tech office. And they can't even write the full word technical. It's just a tech office. He said, it's designed to scare you away. He said, and in there, they got all these cameras and lights and you don't know what they're about. He said, it's not a tech office. It's just a place you go and get equipment. So you were mentioning earlier, Lori, about, you know, desegregation and segregation and integration. And, and that's what we, that's what we call it. I mean, that's what, but in its import, it's being with other human beings. They're not necessarily your color, but you're being with them. Uh, and there's so much weight placed on that and, and verbiage and what we call something and what it means. And I mean, I've always said, you know, hey, when I was first grade and I went to second grade, you know, we integrated the school system. You know, that's, what, that's the language we integrated and we desegregated. And, but like you say, Lori, sometimes words are heavy. 
they become more heavy than they should be. And when you mentioned that, I was reminded of that film school story Bill Adams told, don't be afraid of the tech office. Go there and get your equipment and tell them what you want and you'll check it out and you'll go shoot your film. I'm gonna demystify this process for you. And I think right now what's happening in terms of that in society with Black Lives Matter movement and all these things to come forward, it's starting to be demystified in some people's minds. Now I see what <laughs> those people have been talking about for a long time. I see what they've been screaming about. It's demystified now when I saw a knee on a guy's neck, it got demystified. Although think about it, had there not been any cameras there, would we still be talking about Black Lives Matter as a, as a public conversation? And that's what I mean. We've always had the conversation, technically Black Lives Matter and other minorities uh, have been fighting for things for a long time. It's just that now people can see it. And I think for a lot of people, seeing is believing that, you know, you can hear something and you may not believe it, but seeing is believing, you know, you, oh my God, I saw that guy sit on his neck and I actually saw that with my own eyes. Well, you know, that's happened it, it worse thousands of times. And I feel like now saying those things that, yeah, it's actually good that people are actually recognizing. It's like it's forward thinking. It's actually good that people are recognizing what's been under the water for a while that's now coming to the surface. I think it's good that it's being seen because if it's seen in one group, then it'll be seen in other groups. Um, you know, the Black Lives Matter isn't just about Black lives. It is Black lives, but it's about all those things that people have been fighting for for years. Absolutely. Like you were saying, it's being demystified. We know that racism is at the foundation of this country. And all we have to do is make the effort to look and actually start to educate ourselves. I go back to your mom and the fact that the thing that she's teaching you is if you stand your ground... That even if something unfortunate happens, you know, and you feel good about what you did. But like I can say, Sophia, stand your ground against a bully at school. And I know she's going to be protected. And she's going to, she's, there's certain things that I'm not fearing when I tell her to speak up for herself. And I think about your mom what she's planting in you, one, is your value and your worth to go against everything that society is saying, you know, especially back then. I can't help but think that with the empowerment of those words, the reality of them had to exist because historically, when someone from the black community did stand up for themselves you weren't going to make it out. It's not a given you're going to make it out. And most likely it meant certain death. And so I think about the power of what she's teaching you and the seed that she's planted in you, but how frightening it must have been to say those words. Because, you know, even when you're talking about taking Shailen out for a drive, I think about what you must have been feeling and what you're having to navigate and what you're having to try to guide him through is something that I hear it and it hurts, but I'm not living it. And, you know, most parents would say, oh, yes, of course, these are the words I speak over my children, but the weight of them is different. Yeah, a lot of truth in that, I think. Um, and, and, and there's a balance and a fine line. You know, my mom was teaching those things, and she was teaching to stand up, and she was teaching uh, never start a fight, but never run from one. And 
there's a fine line in there. You know, she was, my mom was a God-fearing woman and she lived that way. And I think the combination of those things, you know, there's sort of a peace that comes with that, which I think is how you can stand up and then not fear potential damage from it. Um, and then in, in everything, it's like we all do in life every day. There's just choices about things. I can choose to go and march downtown and put myself in a situation in some trouble and get arrested. And I can, you know, because that's inevitably it'll happen. Um, I can choose to do those things. I can choose to pick my moments to do those things. I can choose to uh, go to work every day and support my family. Uh, so, you know, everything is a choice. And, and sometimes when you live in, in your choice and then those things come out like a wind and you walk out of a restaurant and those things happen, then you're now faced with a different kind of potential ending. Uh, one that you hope <laughs> doesn't cut you short or do any of these things. But at the same time, everything has a reason. It's either you're learning from it and growing from it or you're not. Uh, it's just basically what you choose. Uh, and choice is a very powerful thing. You know, there's always something you can find in a situation. You, you sometimes just have to find the door. I remember um, I got stopped once. I was with a friend of mine was years ago. And the, the only way I got out of the situation is when the officer started looking through my wallet and he pulled out my college ID and he says, Western Carolina University. Do you go to school there? What are you doing with this? Yes, sir. I go to school there. I'm going to be a junior. And he said, ah, college fellow. And that not only pulled myself out of that situation, but also my friend who wasn't a college fellow. And I just thought, yeah, that was the door in that situation. So, you know, sometimes you consider yourself fortunate. And sometimes it, hey, it's serendipity and sometimes it's uh, all these things. But I like to think that if you're trying to think the right way about situations uh, that, you know, sometimes they can turn out in a positive way. It shows how much as humans we're kind of driven by prejudices and stereotypes. I mean, you look at that police officer's uh stereotype of what a college fellow was juxtaposed against what his stereotype of what an African-American male would be. Absolutely. Well, one thing I learned about you today that I did not know is that you grew up in a, in a sharecropping family and that you picked cotton with your mom. And I hope I don't come off sounding ignorant and I apologize if I am ignorant of certain things, but I think a lot of times we put these things really far in the past can you talk a little bit about what sharecropping was? Well, as I said, it's kind of a, some of these things become, you know, uh, vicious circles. As I remember, I think uh, Dr. King talking about once, uh, where you grew up a certain way and the school systems are not, the teachers in your system, they got a bad deal. They're not making the money they should be. And you learning from that teacher. And then you come out and you teach that to your kids. And it's a vicious circle. So my, my folks, my folks didn't have much, evidenced by the fact that they didn't, they couldn't finish school. They had to help the kids and they had to work in the fields and help their parents provide for the kids. And so that's what my folks learned was farming. And the sharecropping was you farm 
someone's land, someone had a certain acreage of land, three acres of land, and you farm it for them in exchange of sharing the yield and sharing the crop. And so my father would farm these lands and then we, we, you know, we'd go pick, you know, the crop and okra and beans and watermelon, whatever he was growing in there. And we, so we always, that's why I'm saying we never lacked. We always had food. We had a farm. Um, there was a whole business of having a hog. And when my father got ready to, and then we, you, you kill the hog and then salt the meat hang the meat in the smokehouse that we had in the backyard and cure it. And my mother would, she'd freeze uh, parts of the hog and we would eat that winter. Um, and then in the summer, we ate off vegetables from the gardens. And I was telling my son, I didn't have any fast food until I was, I can't even remember what age. First of all, we wouldn't have the money to just go to the store and spend on the hamburger. And second of all, my mom wouldn't let you spend money on it. And third of all, uh, we were growing our own food. So we had fresh food. And, you know, all you had to do was learn how to cook it. So she taught those skills. And so, you know, when I came out of the world on my own, I'm like, McDonald's, man. Yeah, I'm going to McDonald's, you know. Get a burger. I don't have to go to the field and, and, and pick the okra and cook it. Yeah, that's what sharecropping was. So my father did that. And my mother worked those fields, too. And he also had a job in a cotton factory. And my father was providing my mother, who couldn't sit still, was either washing clothes for what we said in the South, washing clothes for white folk, which came out of slavery. And my mother would bring people's clothes to our home, wash them in the washer, the hand ring washer. And, and we were all involved. It was like a process. She'd wash them. We'd rinse them out and hang them on the line and let them dry, take them in, iron them. She'd starch people's clothes, and then she'd deliver the clothes back. So my mother was doing those things until I, in 1968 and 1969, went into the school system, into an all-Black school. And I remember my first grade year of school, my mother also cleaned people's homes. And I would meet my mother at these people's homes after school, and she would be cleaning their homes. And that was a big introduction to me, sometimes in terms of the other side. Because I remember one day after school, and I go in and I went in the kitchen and there was these like five boxes of cereal. We didn't have cereal. And I was like, oh my God. And my mother was like, Do you, would you like a bowl? <laughs> and she'd give me a bowl of cornflakes and pour milk. And I'd sit there and eat while she's cleaning homes. And later in life, I thought, wow, man, something as simple as cereal. I saw that other people and mostly the white people had cereal. Homes I was going into and visiting in France and stuff, the black homes, they didn't have cereal. They didn't have cereal. So my mom did that and she did it for money. And I met a lot of people whom she would interface with because I would go with her to deliver clothes to homes. And um, I actually saw how some people wanted to treat her after she'd done a job for them. And that was part of her money. That was how, what she considered her income coming in. And my father was out working the fields and, and working the cotton factory. But that's just what it was, you know. What did you mean when you said you saw how people wanted to treat your mom? Well, the racism. Um, even though my mom was cleaning people's clothes and washing their clothes, they wanted to treat her a certain way. 
You don't want to touch a black person. You don't want to show that you are on that level. You want to keep them subservient. And so that's 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 what I mean when I say that. And and the number of times that my mother actually didn't bow down to that, but also chose sometimes to ignore it. She had to act a certain way and teach you that way, just like you have to act a certain way and teach Shailen that way. That's right. And which is why I think for me, when I integrated the schools uh, coming back, you know, and I went in integration in second grade in 1969-70 school year, I didn't struggle, so to speak, that much in those schools because I kind of knew how to be. I kind of knew how to be in two worlds. Not that I forgot the world I came from, but I knew how to function in two worlds. And my folks taught that. I saw it with my father. He worked like that. I saw it with my mother. She worked like that. And then eight siblings ahead of me. You know, we all kind of experienced, you know, similar things. And I'm very thankful, actually, for, you know, a lot of those lessons. They allow me to talk to people, you know, who don't look like me. They allow me to go to schools that are mixed schools. I mean, I grew up with that. They allow me a certain uh, access to life that I may or may not have had. But it is your right because your right is to be equal. And yeah. I think that's the I think that's the the wrong historically. We all know it. Just racism and the dehumanization of a human being. Yes. First of all, I just want to make it clear that when we're talking about that you and your family share crop, that was in the late nineteen sixties. That was in I mean specifically I was in first grade. That was in nineteen sixty eight. And when we talk about the desegregation of schools, that began in 1957. But then what you're talking about when you're talking about integration into a, a school that I didn't realize and had to educate myself on, although desegregation began in 1957, there were still, is it called dual schools where the races were separated? And that existed until 1970, correct? Yes. In fact, 1952 was Brown versus the Board of Education. That case didn't get settled, I think, till 54. So in 54, it was just decided that segregation was in the public school systems, et cetera, was unconstitutional. Plessy versus Ferguson in the late 1890s defined that as long as there was equality in the separation, separate but equal, as long as the black train cars had the same amenities and whatever that the white train car, but you couldn't mix the races. Then those things led to Jim Crow, the separate water fountains, and then for six, six decades, that stuff lasted until Brown versus the Board of Education, which said it was unconstitutional. Then they said that now we need to make sure that we no longer segregate, that we desegregate. Now, it just so happened that South Carolina, which is my state, was the last state to desegregate. And that was in 69 to 1969 to 70. That's a state that has been resistant to everything. And it's the state I was born in and grew up in, but the facts are the facts and the truth is the truth. That state was really interested in the holding on to racist principles. I, I decided I would have this as a slip of paper it says, dear parent or guardian, because of the recent ruling of the United States Office of Health, Education, and Welfare, 
Civil Rights Division, your child is being assigned to Central School at the beginning of the 1969-1970 school term. His or her records will be sent to the above mentioned school at the close of this year. Thank you. It was a superintendent of schools. I showed this to my son for the first time two or three years ago. And uh, he was like, what? You know, and think about what that summer was like when I was in an all black school in first grade. And then we were told near the end of the school year, we're going to integrate and you're going to go to a white school across the tracks, literally, and quote, unquote, and what that summer was like waiting on that. I had an older brother who was integrating to white high school and was one of the first African-American football players at the high school. And he told me years later how he had, and a couple of other uh, of his Black friends had quit the team the first few days of practice because of, you know, all of the racism that was going on. And then they decided to stay with the team. But that year, you know, I mean, we had the Robert Kennedy stuff going on that year. Martin King was 68. And then they were telling us we're integrating the schools next year. And so when I was seven years old, I was going to a school that I didn't know with people I didn't know. And I remember one of the first few days of that school, uh, one of these kids I knew got in a fight. One of the black kids I knew from my previous school got in a fight with two of the white kids at the school in the classroom. And I remember sitting there thinking, it's not going to be too good because just in differences. One, it was because of the color of his skin and trying to make him someone he was not. Even some of the teachers being kind of nasty to some of the Black students. And two, we were talking about inclusion and especially at that age, that we were young. I mean, we all we know is what we saw. And it didn't dawn on me until later some of that. I, of course, saw that, but it kind of didn't come my way per se because my mom and my dad had taught how to exist with someone else. That's where that lesson really came in handy for me. But before I left my first grade school, the all black school, the teachers were telling us next year, it was all integration, integration, desegregation, and we're going to go to the white schools. You guys are going to go to the white schools. And they told us, you know, you're going to have to, in a way, be yourselves, but be a certain way because you're going to be with people that you don't know. Um, it's not your Black friends you've had a one-year schooling with right now. And, and, and not only that, there's probably going to be some things to come your way because a lot of people don't want this as evidenced by in Charleston, I think, where 11 kids, their parents sued the school system to integrate their sons and daughters into those schools. Then they won that case. But oddly enough, only those 11 students were able to go into the schools. And I thought about that for a while. I thought, wow, that's where the private schools sprang up because the white parents didn't want their kids to go to school with the black kids. So the private school sprang up. And in fact, I think it was somewhere around 1963 or 1964 that there were so many private schools that sprang up, they called them segregation academies. <laughs> so that's because they didn't want their kids with, to go to school with the Black kids and learn with the Black kids. They're behind. They're not as smart. So inclusion 
uh, as we talk about to kids that's like Liam's age and everything. It's really important that kids see that they are enough and they mean enough regardless of the circumstances. It's something that you actually have to know. You can't just believe it. You have to know it. And that can be, I know, tough for school children that age. But over time, if, it, if it's taught to them, like you guys are doing, if it's taught to them, if it's not sinking in now, it'll sink in later. But yeah, that was a really interesting time, you know. Uh, and then coming home, uh, my mom saying, what happened at school today? And it wasn't just a question of like, oh, what did you study? You know, it's like, what happened at school today? <laughs> because this is a big deal. This, this, this integration business is a big deal. When schools were integrated, was it just uh, the quote-unquote white schools had some black kids come in, or were some white kids transitioned into quote-unquote black schools? That's a great uh, question, Stephen, because that's why I was saying earlier, in South Carolina, most of the integration happened from black kids going into white schools. And in my town, in Gaffney, South Carolina, the black high school actually shut down after that. The uh, elementary school that I went to actually shut down. It became something else like a kindergarten school or something like pre-K kindergarten. But the black schools shut down. And then all those kids went and, and, and melted into the, the white school. It wasn't the other way around because some white parents would not allow their children to go to a black school on principle. And then also based on, which was a big deal at that time, supplies in the school, pencils and books and notebook paper and all those things, erasers. Black schools historically were underfunded in those things. So the white parents were like, no, my kid's not going over there. He's not going to learn anything, you know. And then the other thing I think for me that I didn't get once schools integrated because the school systems in South Carolina were designed a certain way, I no longer necessarily got black history because, because the white schools were in, in that area at that time were kind of designed a certain way where they, they didn't want to teach you that. And only when I went to college and I ran into people who were fellow students like myself, and, and we would be talking about some subject in class in college, and I'd be like, I've never even heard of that. And people were like, oh, you didn't have that in junior high? <laughs> junior high? I don't even know that now. I'm 19. So then I did my own research, and I realized that when I was growing up in school in the late 60s, 70s, and coming out of high school, South Carolina was the third worst educated state in the nation at that time. I didn't know that. I was just trying to get out of school, make a grade. But those things I learned quite later, you know. What I'm learning now is how Black history has been omitted from history, and it's just history. Even that segregation, you're trying to distinguish between our history by pulling out parts and making it be deconstructed. And maybe that's why there's been no change. Maybe that's why this is so slow to come is because you're omitting so much of the facts that people need to know in order to actively move towards making this long overdue change. And when we omit those facts, we omit so many opportunities for us to actually change and evolve. And I think that's why we haven't evolved. 
And when you talk about that your parents taught you how to exist with someone, that's something totally different. That's like I always would tell Sophia, I'd say, you're going to need to learn how to be around people that don't necessarily think like you do, that you wouldn't necessarily take into your circle as your best friend, but you need to learn how to exist around all people. That's not what your parents were telling you. And that's not what your teachers were telling you. It's heavier than that. It's basically looking at a seven-year-old, how do I say this without saying what I need to say, but get the message of, I want you to stay alive because they knew what they had experienced in their life as far as racism, what racism was to this country. And this is years after Martin Luther King had died and the rest of the country moves on thinking that this... (laughs) This is actually still such a, a live, vibrant thing that's in existence. Yeah. Martin Luther King was simply fighting for simple things. I mean, I want to be able to go and eat in the same restaurants that you eat in. And you should be able to come to the restaurants I eat in. We should share the same books at school and learn the same things about history. Interesting thing, speaking of that in history... I lost one of my middle brothers from sarcoidosis. And my brother passed, he was 52, my brother, Alan. And before he passed, he'd been doing the family history of my family. And Alan had gotten our family back so far in terms of our history and couldn't really go back any further because what he was finding was is that even when he found our family in, in the books, The name Dawkins, D-A-W-K-I-N-S, was now becoming D-O-C-K-I-N-S, D-A-U-K-I-N-S, you know. So a lot of slave owners even did misspellings to throw things off for people. So unlike someone, perhaps you guys, I'm not sure, who can just say, oh my God, look at this photo of my great-grandfather, and he came over here, and he did this, and this was his history, and he came from Ireland, and he did these things. Well, a lot of Black folks can't do that. So now there's 23andMe and there are these things that you can actually leap beyond those things. You may not necessarily be able to trace it on paper because things got convoluted at some point and the books got scrambled. But that's a really interesting thing. I can't know on paper right now some of my history. I can't know which boat did my people come over on. I can't know some specifics of those things. I'd like to know that, and I can't know it. All I can have is my imagination of it. But you should be able to know. (laughs) You have to find different ways to think about that and actually come to terms with it. When you talk about not being able to track your history and the impact that has, I think this is where I see the reflection in the disability community, where Um, if you never know that it can be done and you're always told that it can't and it never was, it's so much harder to do because the message that you're receiving is less than, not equal, foolish uh, words are being spoken over you. It's so much harder to rise out of that. And I think that by omitting that history that could help you to rise out of it, it's easier to, to keep oppressing people. That's very true. And all of those words are adjectives that fall under the heading of supremacy. Treating people like they are, as you said, less than you 
and I think what that is about is 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 a void in oneself that needs to be filled because you don't think that you are enough or good enough. Then therefore, you're going to make sure that someone else knows that you're above them and you are better than them. Most of these things break down to simple explanations, though they may have been convoluted in, over the years. That's basically what it amounts to. You know, we say power and we say all these things, but it's actually something maybe a little bit deeper than that, that there's something you need to fill by telling others that they're not as good as you. And you have to ask your question, what is that about? And when you can answer that question, maybe you can change that for yourself and understand that nobody's any different than you and you're no different than anybody. You're taught a certain way, but once you know better, you know better. Once you're, once you're educated that, you know, that statue that you've been looking at, that this is what you think it represents. This is actually why it's there. This is actually why they carved in the mountain. This is actually what that flag means. When you know, then you're making an active choice. And that's a great point because I think, you know, when you look at it like that, people have been sold a bill of goods, but they don't know it. I agree, Stephen, that what you were saying is that what you were told about the Civil War wasn't really about that. And to a race of people like me, it was about trying to sustain slavery. And, and, and even that, that's an example too, because Lori, you mentioned earlier, well, 1952, we started saying that segregation is not right. We need to desegregate. And then you asked me, why did it take so long for that to happen? You're in 1969. That was almost 20 years later. The civil War was the same way. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, but by the time some of those states realized, wait a minute, I'm not going to have these people taking care of me and my property and my farms anymore and making business for me and making thousands of dollars and, and doing all these things. Wait a minute, I need to resist. And that's what we do, Stephen, speaking of what you brought up, being humans. That's what we do. We resist. I mean, the knee-jerk reaction always is, let me protect what I have and let me protect my investments instead of looking at how is it going to affect someone else and not me. And that is where the crux is. Those are the tenets of trying to figure our way around what happened back in those days of the Civil War and then Reconstruction and and all these things, um, a lot of it's steeped in history. And when you don't know those things, you can't know that that's what was going on. And then therefore you can't even make an informed decision about what you need to understand. And you don't understand what you need to change. Yes, which is why change doesn't happen so rapidly. <laughs> and that people are just holding on to what it used to be and we're going to keep it this way. And we've seen that, man. We've seen it recently when people don't want to change. Because it takes effort, Willie. It takes effort to change. It takes introspection. It takes effort. And it takes work. And it takes talking to somebody else about what their story is about. And when you live on only your story, that's all you have to feed on. 
And and then I think you're right. Yeah, most people just like, you know what? I'm not interested in changing. I'm not interested in doing the work. And my wife and I talk about that a lot, you know, doing the work, uh, whatever you're going to do, you know, it's not, you got to do some work. There's got to be something. You know, we're talking all the way back to a, a history that's been, that was rewritten. And now we know about that so we can educate ourselves and change. And I think a lot of the times it's so hard to look and see when you've caused pain and hurt. When the story is showing to you that maybe you didn't cause that much pain and, you know, it was really kind of good for everybody, that's easier to go, oh, no, no, this is what they said and this is how it is. It's harder to see the, the gross injustice and you have to see it to change it. I've had this conversation a couple times this week about change. We're all equal. That was actually written into the 14th Amendment. We're all equal. So enough time has passed. And, you know, people will always say, you know, oh, well, baby steps and we need to do this. But I just think that now we know, you know, you were, you were talking about the integration of the, uh, the 11 students and that then those were the only students that were let in. And it's so frustrating that it, that it's so selective and that happened. And then, you know, Stephen and I have to fight for Liam's education every year. Every year we hire a lawyer grade by grade. And that was given to him in IDEA in 1975. But still, we fight every year for Liam to stay in an inclusive classroom with his peers. We have to keep, we have to fight for him to be on curriculum. We have to fight for him to have the supports he needs. And, and those are all things that are actually his rights. I, I don't want to appear to come off that that is anywhere near the history of slavery and segregation. It's not comparable in the journey that was taken. But the words, the verbiage that is there is that we're all equal to an inclusive, desegregated education. In our case, it's an inclusive classroom. But yet, it still exists in society that it is only for the individual who has the wherewithal to fight a different fight. And I think that that's where it's relied upon is that not every parent when schools were segregated had the ability to make that fight for so many reasons. I mean, what that what they were then opening their life to by standing up as being equal. And I, I think that that's the problem is that the, that it still exists. And I see that correlation, even though it is written it's still not upheld because there's a reliance there that not everybody will have the ability. They won't have the ability. There was so much gold in what you just said, because most things, not to compare most things, I've learned a lot from your talking, Lori, about what you and Stephen go through with your challenges with the school system and keeping Liam on curriculum and all those things. That's a testament to what you guys are doing, because, you know, uh, a lot of parents would choose not to have that, not to do that. And you're actually what you guys are doing is actually trying to give your child a different life and have him see life in a more meaningful way than what technically the system wants him to see it. And so that is a very extremely hard and admirable fight. And not to compare the two, but there are common denominators and some of the same ingredients in that cake. And that is not giving up, fighting for something worthwhile, and trying to live your life in a meaningful way. 
you know, you can look at any kind of challenges that people have had and races of people and some of those ingredients are still in those. Um, Black Lives Matter, you can name those ingredients. And sometimes it's tiring, you know, sometimes that's tiring. Um, you were talking about the reality earlier. That's, yeah, my reality has been what it's been. It can't be changed what I've come through. That's been my reality. It can be changed going forward. It, it can be changed going forward. So 10 years from now, we may have this conversation and I may say, hey, you know what, guys, my reality changed. You know, I'm no longer, and I no longer think about those things because A, B, and C happened. Uh, I'm hopeful for that, very hopeful for that. Uh, but right now, it's been my reality. And as my mom taught, what's the best you can make out of the reality? And that's, that, that's where I am. You know, that, that's where I am today, you know? I think you've gotten through and come to where you are because of two wonderful parents who knew what they needed to do in order to give you the best chance, mm -hmm. whether it was right or wrong, that you had to learn how to exist in what you had to exist in wasn't what they thought about because it's definitely wrong, but they knew that it's just what it is. Mm, yes. And they gave you those tools I, I hear the shifts you make and the compromises of self and of spirit. And I know that the toll, there has to be a toll somewhere. And I think that's what people need to understand is that nobody has the right to put that on another person. Yet, historically, that's what we've done. Mm -hmm. And I am also hopeful for the evolution to happen to where this will be a turning point where real action happens. There are people who do bad things, who aren't kind. They exist in the world, but they shouldn't have the loudest voice. And I think they've had the loudest voice for a long time. And I think we've seen what happens when that voice is the loudest and has the ability to run free. I can't help but do anything but hope, but hope seems like it's not enough. It's through our actions. It's through our everyday conversations. It's through our standing up for each other. It's through, if you see someone who's being wrong, to have that courage to stand up for them. And when we talk about integration and then we talk about disability, yeah, there are, there are definitely correlations. And I think, I think, honestly, seeing what other great leaders, Martin Luther King Jr. and John Lewis and everybody who fought for civil rights, when they were fighting for civil rights, they were also fighting for my son's rights. Yes, they were. And it is just that everybody is equal. And I hope that people can see the correlation of if one person is treated as if they're not equal, then none of us are equal. Nobody can be equal until we're all equal. I think that's very well said. And I, and I think there's a lot of gravity to that. It's one thing to hope for something, but I, I think we know that, you know, faith without works is dead. So you got to do some work. You got to find ways to change things through work and through minds coming together and figuring out the best way to go forward in situations. I think that's all people are looking for. You know, people are really tired of hearing, okay, we're going to pray for the families. We are going to pray for the families, but what's the work? 
Like, what is the specific action that needs to be taken to secure a result? You're such a gift to us. Um, you always have been a gift to us. I want to emanate the mindfulness. You're not frivolous with uh, your thoughts or, or words. Well, I appreciate that. And the feeling is mutual. You know, every day is different. And, you know, you try to change something today. And that's all you can hope for. Well, Lady, I'm so glad I got to see your face today. Me too. I'm, happy. I'm good to see you guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, I hope I've shared something that's been helpful. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. From the top.